This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, I'm Blake Chastain, and this is Powers and Principalities. This show focuses on the systems and institutions that prop up white evangelical power and influence in America and the world. Season one is focused on white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. This is episode five. My guest for this episode is Sarah Posner, author of the recent book Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Her book chronicles the intellectual history of the religious right and demonstrates how support for Donald Trump is not an aberration, but rather the culmination of decades of work. We discuss how the new right, the Christian right, and the alt-right are all interconnected, and the inherently un-American and anti-democratic nature of these far-right movements in America and abroad. I spoke to Sarah on Friday, September 18th, and while we did talk about the Trump administration's recent announcement of so-called patriotic education and a federal election commissioner's comments calling the separation of church and state a fallacy, news of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing had not yet broken. That loss makes this conversation all the more urgent and relevant, and I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to support the show, please do so by telling people about it, by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and signing up for a paid subscription to my newsletter, The Post-Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Listeners can get 25% off a subscription by visiting the link in the show notes. If I received 800 subscribers, I could dedicate more time to bringing you content like this and even expand my coverage. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain and on Instagram at brchastain underscore. Without further ado, let's get to this conversation. My guest today is Sarah Posner, author of the recent book, Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on and talking to me about your book. Uh, it is a very thorough and incredible book, and you actually accomplished something pretty incredible with it, which is to in- incorporate the chaotic flurry of all the headlines, developments, and scandals of the Trump administration and put them in their historical context. What you've done is to really demonstrate that the Trump administration and the evangelical support he enjoys isn't just a political aberration within the GOP or a compromise on behalf of white evangelicals, but is rather this culmination of decades of work by all sorts of policymakers and lobbyists and other interests. Is that a proper summary of your book? Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. And thanks for your kind words. Um, Yeah, it's true. Uh, Trump is not an aberration. Um, Perhaps they did not fully envision every twist and turn of his chaotic campaign and chaotic presidency, and perhaps did not envision that their savior would turn out to be someone who had been accused of 
by of rape by nearly two dozen women or had boasted of raping women um, and had been married three times. But here was somebody who was willing to snub his nose at the civil rights movement, at the women's rights movement, of all of these changes that took place culturally and politically in our country in the second half of the 20th century. And this is really what the religious right was formed to oppose. And it turned out that they were very satisfied um, with having somebody who didn't care about bipartisanship, who didn't care about civility, and would just uh, bigfoot through all of the rhetoric and policy on their behalf. And before we dive into your investigation itself, I do want to ask sort of at the top, how have people responded to the this data and to your thesis? In particular, I'm interested in sort of the media response and how whether some people in the media are surprised, excuse me, surprised, and just other quote unquote regular people who might have just picked up your book wanting to understand this connection between white evangelicals and Trump. Yeah, I think a lot of people, judging from conversations that I've had or other interviews that I've done um, on radio or podcasts like this, or podcasts, not necessarily like this one, but podcasts, um, is that um, I think a lot of people thought of this relationship as purely transactional, that they thought, oh, okay, I get it. Like the, the Christian right was looking at the possibility that, you know, Hillary Clinton would be president that she would get to nominate uh, Justice Scalia's replacements or any other potential replacements on the Supreme Court, that she would make policy and we don't like Hillary Clinton, so we'll just do this handshake with Donald Trump and then we'll get what we want. And I think that that completely overlooks the nature of this relationship as being very um, both, I guess, emotional and um, cultural. Uh, in the sense that they really see Trump as somebody who's unafraid to take on their battles and that he understands their battles. And when it comes right down to it, their battles are against uh, liberal democracy and everything it stands for, an independent judiciary, a free press, an accountable government, and a government that ensures that every citizen's rights and dignity are protected. That helps to explain some of the comments from people. Um, I hope I'm attributing this right. I believe it was Robert Jeffress who said that he wanted a fighter, um, someone that would stand up and do that sort of thing instead of someone that was meek and one might say (laughs) Christ-like. Yeah, right, right. I mean, I think definitely the, um, the idea of um, him being a warrior for them um, and strong. Uh, They really like the strong man. I think that um, a lot of people have asked me the question, well, Trump has all of these autocratic tendencies and how can these supposed Christians square that with their Christianity? And I'm like, that's exactly what their version of Christianity is about. It's about looking for a strong man and seeing Jesus himself as a strong man, right? right? Right. So, you know, so I think that people kind of get that question wrong because they don't really understand um, what drives the Christian right and what really drives the Christian right is not um, 
I think a lot of people have bought into the idea that the Christian right is about values and morality, right? Because they've successfully marketed themselves as such. Um, and so that's why they can't, people can't wrap their minds around why a movement that claims to be about values and morality would like Donald Trump. And so you really have to understand better what the Christian right is about to understand that relationship as more than transactional, if that makes sense. Right. Absolutely. Um, there are a handful of terms um, that I think would be really good to to codify and sort of define a little bit in our discussion, the terms are all related, uh, and your book does a wonderful job of showing the sort of connective tissue and intellectual and social history that connects these groups. Um, but to delineate them would would be helpful. And as you present them in your book, um, they are the New Right, which was guided by uh, Paul Weirich and others, the Christian Right, which is known for figures like Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority. And then the alt-right, which is known for people like Steve Bannon and Richard Richard Spencer. And your book details how all these groups relate to one another. Could you help us uh, understand these three different groups and, and how they have had shared interests and sort of led to one another in what might be surprising ways? So the New Right was a movement that grew out of people who supported Gary Barry Goldwater's failed 1964 presidential run. And a lot of them came to Washington with the idea that they needed to make a more robust conservative movement that was more, um, shall we say, right-wing populist um, than what they viewed as kind of the uh, country club Republicanism of the Republican Party, of people like William F. Buckley, who was um, the editor of the National Review. And so they started putting together this movement, um, both in Washington and beyond, you know, recruiting people to run for Congress and so on. And Paul Weirich was at the center of this. Um, he was the architect of a lot of the political organizations that were originally part of the new right. And now we would just consider to be part of the conservative movement, the Heritage Foundation the Council for National Policy, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and many others. And so while they had all of these, um, let's just say white guys who were sitting around plotting this new right movement um, for, for middle America, basically middle American white people, Weirich, who was a very devout Catholic, in fact, so devout that Vatican II led him away from the Catholic church and towards an Eastern Rite church, which he thought was more traditional. Um, he was very opposed to abortion and he knew other Catholics also were. Um, and uh, he knew that he could mobilize Catholics around that issue. He didn't have that kind of success mobilizing white fundamentalists and evangelicals around that issue. He got them more engaged when it came to issues surrounding school desegregation. And so eventually that led to him and Jerry Falwell and Robert Billings, who I talk quite a bit of in the book about, probably more than Falwell, um, forming the moral majority in 1979. And so that's what we came to know as, as the Christian right. Um, and then the alt-right is a movement that started to uh, gain visibility during Trump's campaign in 2015 and 2016 because they were incredibly enthusiastic about his racist, xenophobic, white nationalist campaign, um, his you know statements and policy proposals on immigration and so forth. Um, the alt-right uh, is basically this very sort of diffuse and not as well organized in terms of organizations and fundraising and all of that as the Christian right is, but it's, you know, kind of a motley crew of 
neo-Nazis and white supremacists and white nationalists. Um, but a lot of the figures in the alt-right um, uh, either were um, involved in some way in the new right or kind of grew out of that. So people like Sam Francis or Bob Whitaker, who I talk about in the book quite a bit, were people who were part of the new right um, back in the 1970s and early 1980s and then became kind of um, intellectual godfather figures to um, the alt-right, which kind of got that name around 2010. One of the things that you highlight is the ways in which some of the people that were on the fringe of the conservative movement still maintained considerable influence on different people within all of these groups. Uh, a phrase that sort of entered the common vernacular, at least in some places online, is talk of things like shifting the Overton window uh, of what is acceptable belief and practice. One of the things that is surprising throughout your book is the the ways in which some of these fringe figures of the conservative movement continue to influence mainstream politics, especially with regard to race and white supremacy. Uh, one such example is someone like Peter Brimelow. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. that name. Brimelow, yeah. Brimelow. Um, and the ways in which, which he influenced people within the alt-right and sort of activated this this white grievance that was that was there and already pre-existing. How did the GOP and, and the Trump campaign uh, sort of take advantage of, of that sort of um, radicalization through the influence of, of these sorts of figures? One of the things I talk about in the book is something I call the Brimelow thesis, <laughs> um, which is based on something Brimelow told me in 2016. Um, so Brimelow now... Uh, runs this site called VDARE, which is this virulently anti-immigrant uh, white nationalist uh, website. And, um, and in 2016, Brimelow told me, look, you know, my writers, many of whom write under a pseudonym or anonymously on VDARE, um, are, you know, all over Washington. They're in the belly of the beast. And one of the things that the alt-right is very conscious of is that um, the not respectability of, of their movement in mainstream circles. And so they don't want to be the one who gets um, fired from some government job or from some think tank job because of their association with, um, with the alt-right. So they're very conscious of that and not revealing their identities. Um, so like people, um, you know, that's why they write anonymously for these alt-right websites. And so that kind of comment was, was he kind of made offhand to me in 2016, stuck with me when I was doing the research for the book because Brimelow himself was one of these people who was very much inside mainstream politics, GOP politics and conservatism um, earlier in his career until it became inconvenient. He became too, um, uh, toxic in terms of his views on immigration. And he got fired from the National Review by Bill Buckley. Um, and he's like resented it ever since. He still writes nasty stuff about, about Bill Buckley on, on VDARE. Uh, and so in the Trump era, what we've seen is all of these people who have these views and these associations with these toxic figures who remain in power regardless of that, right? So in the past, 
the GOP and the conservative movement would try to, it was kind of like whack-a-mole. They had somebody, oh, like they said something that was really white supremacist or racist. Uh, we're going to like cut them loose from our, from the Heritage Foundation, or we're going to cut them loose from National Review or whatever. And I think in the Trump era, that became less um, common, right? And now you have somebody like Stephen Miller, who obviously, you know, has a ton of power and has associations with, um, you know, uh, Richard Spencer and, and Peter Brimelow, and he has one of the most powerful jobs in the entire Trump administration. Um, so, you know, it's just this kind of fascinating, like I said, whack-a-mole that the conservative movement and the Republican Party tried to do so many times with so many different figures. And um, that's why people like Brimelow call it conservatism, Inc., because like they, they like to sort of disparage it as being um, they were sort of bought and paid for and they won't listen to their kind of true ideological roots in people like Brimelow or, or uh, Sam Francis, for example. And, you know, he's another example of someone who was fired from the Washington Times. So, um, yeah, so I think what, what, what happened in the Trump era was he normalized all of this, right? And so then you didn't see people getting fired. You know, occasionally you would see it in the Trump administration, but people with very powerful positions, you know, haven't suffered any consequences. And Stephen Miller is obviously mm -hmm. the prime example of that. Right. And then uh, one, one example you also cite is Steve King, even though he um, was stripped of his congressional, I'm sorry, his committee positions, he still maintains a rather influential weekly meeting uh, that people still attend as if, because he's still okay to associate with. That's what's certainly fascinating about the book and about conservatism over the last few decades is the is the the ways in which there are massive policy changes and policy goals, but they still find a way to activate and appeal to a very sort of populist sentimentality. These people that that have that remain influential still feel as if they are outsiders or do not have impact. Well, I think that something that Trump has done is make those people who had all these grievances about being isolated from the conservative movement or ostracized from the conservative movement now are the conservative movement, right? And so, for example, CPAC, which is the annual um, conservative political action conference that's like attended by, you know, all the conservative luminaries and Trump speaks at it and Pence speaks at it and, all, you know, Republican president. I mean, it's, you know, it's like a Republican confab. And I've covered it for years. And there was definitely a very different, um, much more right-wing populist autocratic um, vibe going on there once Trump took office. Mm -hmm. And turning back to Trump, your book indicates that, that he was a figure of interest to some people as far back as 2011 and seeing political promise in a figure like Trump, once he starts, he announces his presidential bid, and uh, and that begins his his hectic campaign. We see a sort of reckoning within white evangelical leadership. Uh, most notably, leaders like Russell Moore were trying to caution against Trump, while others like uh, Robert Jeffress and Jerry Falwell Jr., who's making headlines of his own now, yes, were championing uh, Trump much very early. When Jeffress believed for instance, that people like Moore were sort of trailing the evangelical base, as it were. He was actually right about that. Yeah. And, and what do you think, what do you think Moore missed that Jeffress saw 
in the evangelical base that we know he's he is that Trump and and his administration are trying to appease and appeal to. Wow, that is such an interesting way to pose the question um, with sort of counterposing Robert Jeffress and Russell Moore, who are both Southern Baptist pastors. And I think that is going to be my entry point in answering your question. I think what Russell Moore saw and thought was his corner of the Southern Baptist Convention, where, um, and there is a corner of the Southern Baptist Convention where there are pastors and people in the pews, but mostly pastors who wanna address historic racism within the denomination, who believe that um, immigrants should be welcomed into this country, um, who believe that we should be you know, resettling refugees and so on. This is the corner of the Southern Baptist Convention that Russell Moore knows well. Robert Jeffress, who pastored, so for your listeners who don't know, Russell Moore is a pastor and a theologian, and he's the president of the uh, Washington, D.C. policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention called the um, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. So he's a very prominent figure, yet he's reviled by the right um, mm -hmm. within his denomination and in evangelicalism more broadly. Uh, which tells you a lot, um, given right. how I just described him, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so so Jeffress uh, told me in an interview, because I've asked him on, I think, more than one occasion about Moore and how he feels about Russell Moore. And he, he thinks Russell Moore is out of step with the base. And I, I think he's actually correct. Um, uh, but he says denominations don't really matter anymore. So you have somebody like, uh, Robert Jeffress, who's a Southern Baptist pastor and ostensibly pastors a Southern Baptist church, but I would put him closer theologically, politically, personally, with somebody like Paula White, who's a top, you know, spiritual advisor, whatever that means, uh, to Donald Trump, and as a prosperity gospel preacher, right? And so you what you see is that Jeffress still has a foot in the in the Southern Baptist Convention that Russell Moore hopes to change, right? Um, and a foot in the prosperity gospel world, mm -hmm. and a foot in all of these various corners of American evangelicalism, which are pro-Trump. And so he knows that the base is for Trump, even notwithstanding the amount of media attention that Russell Moore got in 2015 and 2016 over his opposition to Trump. Correct. Right. So it's a really interesting dynamic. Right. Yeah. Because Jeffress is appealing to this populist sort of pan-denominational, I mean, non-denominational is within Christian, Protestant Christian circles is often considered almost de facto Southern Baptist, <laughs> but, yeah. but nonetheless, yes, I think um, that's, Je that's what Jefferson is appealing to. But I, th I would, what, what I would uh, add on more, to that with regard by to comparison, Trump is has a more I think because of his longstanding relationship with Paula White, wanting to move um, he already forward. had an entree into that televangelism world, which he, he was very sort of comfortable in because if you see the way he talks and talks about money and talks about himself and the fact that he, you know, had some uh, familiarity with Norman Vincent Peale as a child, 
Um, so he's very comfortable in those spaces. And then in 2011, he gets this softball interview on Christian Broadcasting Network where they're sort of really promoting him as somebody who could be a good candidate for evangelicals, even despite the fact that he has this kind of checkered past. Right. We'll actually return to that um, in a little bit, this televangelist sort of connection uh, that Trump has. But I do want to also talk about going back to the Christian right um, and right. its origins. One piece that is is well known is like a piece that Randall Palmer wrote a few years ago, sort of exploding mm-hmm. this myth that the Christian right was founded in response to abortion. You go into further depth in your book to show that it was actually in the fight against integration in schools and in other aspects of community life within the United States. And I want to turn back to uh, one one uh, figure that we mentioned earlier as well, uh, Paul Weirich. What sort of role did, did they have in, in beginning to form the Christian right and by aggravating these racist grievances and sort of tapping into these racist beliefs that, that were being stoked throughout the United States in response to integration? So uh, in response to um, integration, but also to other uh, changes that were happening um, in the law and in culture and in the schools, um, you started to see the rise of the Christian school. I mean, obviously it wasn't solely, you know, for K through 12 school. I mean, it wasn't solely because of um, Brown v. Board of Education. It was also because of the early 1960s Supreme Court decisions invalidating mandatory school prayer and Bible reading in public schools, right? So you saw like a whole bunch of different things. But what happened um, with regard to school desegregation and the K through 12 Christian schools is that the Internal Revenue Service, you know, in in the same policy that it was trying to enact when it um, took away the tax exempt status for Bob Jones University over its ban on interracial dating, was going to the Christian K through twelve schools and saying, "Look, you know, you're not integrated, and so like unless you take these steps to try to recruit or attract or admit." Um, more uh, minority students into your schools, we're going to have to take away your tax exempt status too. And you don't have to actually like accomplish certain things. You know, you, 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 what we're really concerned about is that if you actually like make the effort. And um, Bob Billings, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, was a leader in the K through 12 um, Christian school movement. And I think he's his his role in all of this, I think, has been underappreciated. The research that I did for the book made me realize that he was probably closer to and admired by Weirich more than Falwell. Um, and so he uh, organized a movement to contest the IRS's ability to do this or authority to do this. And a, a lot of the current Christian rights opposition to um, government intervention in um, religious organizations, particularly when it comes to the IRS, um, has, you know, it has its roots in, in this movement that Billings started. Um, and so Wyrick has admitted to many different people, uh, including to Randy Balmer, that he could not get white evangelicals and fundamentalists interested in the abortion issue that interested him and his fellow Catholics so much. But they were very energized by Billings' movement on the Christian school movement. Mm. We're talking on September 18th, and this is sort of playing out 
in real time, even now in 2020, <laughs> just ripped from the headlines here a little bit, uh, is just yesterday, Trump announced what he called, he called for patriotic education. And uh, this is audio, so you can't see my air quotes. Right. But it was in an effort to defend American history from the left. And um, I've talked to others that where we've talked about Christian education and its role, whether it's related to Christian Reconstruction and its framing mm-hmm. of uh, American history. But we, we're still seeing the consequences of Bob Billings and others' uh, actions even play out even now. So what's your response to this announcement from Trump just in the last 24 hours? Well, Trump is definitely playing to his base who has long believed that what they call government schools, which is the sort of derogatory term they like to use for public schools, are dens of indoctrination of your children, whether it's um, you know Marxism or socialism or Islam or um, uh, uh, you know or even issues surrounding race and integration. So one of the uh, historical moments I, I I talk about in the book is this battle over school textbooks that took place in the early 1970s in Charleston, West Virginia, um, where there was this movement that drew the attention of um, these budding politicos in Washington um, to get rid of these textbooks, which they considered to be unchristian and un-American. And so the things that they objected to were things like uh, an elementary school textbook that had a black boy giving a flower to a white girl on the cover of the book, or a curriculum for high school students that included them studying figures like James Baldwin um, or Langston Hughes, right? And so if, you know, and and there were people in the community who, you know, the people who were raising all the ruckus and and, uh, fighting against these textbooks who would say things like, well, we don't want our children reading about criminals. And it's like, uh, neither Langston Hughes nor James Baldwin were criminals, but they're black. And so like this assumption that they must be criminals then, it's very Trumpian, right? Like, so, you know, Trump was sentient in the early 1970s, I mm-hmm. assume. I mean, he was an adult. Uh, and uh, and so like, you know, this is this is part of the same kind of toxic brew from which he's drawing this idea that the 1619 project is Mm un-American or unpatriotic and has to be countered with his, you know, commission or his investigations or his ban on teaching, his purported ban on teaching uh, this curriculum in public schools. Mm -hmm. And certain, certain terms are used to, to signal his intent, like the word heritage, which is something that, that is used within Christian education circles as well to indicate a particular type of white Christian Protestant heritage. Correct. Yes. <laughs> sort of. It's sort of baffling that this is where we are. <laughs> I, mean, I know, and it just shows you how intensely um, embroidered a lot of this is in many pockets of American culture. That he he knows that he he has a base to appeal to. On all of this and the base reacts positively to it. Um, some of it obviously is just about, you know, they love to own the libs as they like to say, but a lot of it is very deeply rooted in the idea that anything 
uh, in which uh, either a black intellectual is celebrated or the actual racist history of our country is explored is necessarily both unchristian and un-American. Right. One of the things that you do in the book is you you detail the ways in which some of these proponents that support Trump and and are working towards the same sort of political goals are actually themselves the ones that are un-American, anti-American even, um, and anti-democratic. Um, I want to start first with the sort of assault on civil rights that we've that we've seen and then get sort of close with the ways in which they're working towards anti-democratic goals but let's start with this small topic yeah. <laughs> of uh, of civil rights and um your book does a very good job of exploring the ways in which the Christian right has undermined civil rights through different Trump uh, administration appointments in particular, I'm thinking of the work of the, the Department of Health and Human Services um, and how they've changed their work and how they enact laws, existing laws on the books. And that's something that um, I think your book gives a very necessary context to because it's some the news cycle is usually so wrapped up in whatever Trump tweeted or whatever terrible scandal is is breaking at a given time. But what you detail is the way in which it's eroding access to civil rights, uh, eroding civil rights themselves for marginalized communities. Uh, that's a long preface for you to, to talk about this, but if you could just explore for a little bit for the audience, the ways in which the people that come from the Christian right and have been put in positions of power in the Trump administration are eroding civil rights here in, in the United States right now. So one of the main things that I focus on in the book is the way in which they use uh, religious freedom as kind of a bludgeon against other people's civil rights. So in terms of policy and um, carrying out policy, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has kind of been ground zero for that. Rolling back Obama era um, regulations and guidance um, on protecting LGBTQ rights in the name of protecting religious freedom for Christians who object to same-sex marriage or object to LGBTQ rights or object to people who are transgender. Um, and so uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has been ground zero for that because they created um, a conscience and religious freedom division uh, where they're using the Office of Civil Rights within the agency. Now, all federal agencies have an Office for Civil Rights, or maybe not all of them, but a lot of them do. And traditionally, what they've been used for is to vindicate the rights of marginalized communities, not to vindicate the rights of conservative Christians who don't like it that abortion is legal or that um, transgender people uh, should have um, access to health care without discrimination. Uh, and so what you have is this division within the Office of Civil Rights who has solicited complaints from the public um, with the help of Christian right groups like, you know, uh, the Family Research Council, you know, publicizing it uh, to get complaints from people who might complain that their religious freedom is being violated or their conscience is being violated because they um, live in a state where, um, you know, uh, crisis pregnancy centers have to 
provide information to women about, you know, where else to go for contraception and reproductive health care, or they object to, uh, they work in a hospital and they don't even want to empty the trash can in the room where an abortion had been performed, or, um, you know, any number of things. And so they've transformed what is supposed to be an office that vindicates the rights of the marginalized um, into a sort of an arm of the Christian right to try to use this religious freedom um, to exempt themselves from having to have anything to do with um, reproductive health care or LGBTQ rights. And I would also add that, you know, on top of all of this, I focus a lot on the religious freedom and LGBTQ rights in the, in the mm-hmm. book, but there are other um, agencies where uh, religious right allies are carrying out other um, rollbacks of, of civil rights initiatives that protect uh, people based on race. Um, so the, the rollbacks of the Fair Housing Act at the uh, Housing and Urban Development, which is led by Bill, Ben Carson, who's a very strong ally of the Christian right, or the, um, the um, rollbacks of doing um, consent decrees in cities to stop police brutality at the Department of Justice, that they started to roll that back back when uh, when uh, when they ended that program when uh, Jeff Sessions was Attorney General, mm-hmm. and so you know in the early days of the Trump administration, you saw a very bright red blinking light that issues surrounding the government's the federal government's role in ensuring that uh, local police departments don't uh, engage in racist or um, brutal or uh or violent uh uh policing uh activities uh against citizens um you saw that in that rollback you saw uh sort of a, a foreshadowing uh of of how the trump administration would deal with what would later become um this uh these protests that we're right. seeing now Today's this year response to yeah uh, police killings of of unarmed black men and other and women. People of color. and women. Yes. yes. Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are best known and are in the are in uh, the public eye right now and then but there are many that, that never do. And that as you said, that exacerbated an existing problem and removed key federal oversight um, to those sorts mm-hmm. of injustices. Huh. That part of the book was <laughs> shocking. You know, I I've thought that I had a, a good grasp on on the sorts of uh, machinations that were happening. Um, but some of the things that you detailed there and the degree to which they have moved swiftly to roll back those things uh, is alarming. Yes. And um, in many cases, they do it um, without regard to laws and procedures that they're supposed to follow when they're rolling back a regulation. And um, that's why judges are so important to them, right? Because that's another reason why judges are so important to them. Because the more you have judges who don't care about those things, like, you know, following the Administrative Procedure Act, and they, like the Christian right, are opposed to LGBTQ rights, um, you know, that this is one of the many reasons why judges matter. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if they roll back a regulation, and um, somebody challenges that in court. Um, we've seen a number of instances in the Trump administration where the court invalidated the rollback because they didn't um, comply with the Administrative Procedures Act. 
But I think part of the reason why they're hoping to get more judges on the bench is so that they'll have more judges who don't really care about those things in the service of the overall overarching agenda. Right. And one of the ways that you illustrate a potential sort of future or, or a a country that, that has is a little further along in this path than us is, is looking at Viktor Orban's Hungary. Um, and that's where I want to transition uh, and talk about the ways in which the Christian right and the alt-right have looked at autocratic strongmen in Europe, such as Russia's Putin and, Victor, and Hungary's Viktor Orban, for guidance as even as exemplars of um, of Christianity, how have these groups pursued anti-American and anti anti-democratic roles, and how are they making these sort of transatlantic relationships towards these more autocratic goals that undermine the U.S. idealized, at least, version of de- democracy? So all of this is happening at the same time that there's this growing movement around the world uh, of the rise of these right-wing, xenophobic, nativist autocrats, people like Jair Bolsonaro in in Brazil, or as you say, Orban in Hungary, or even Putin in Russia. Um, So, you know, some of this is uh, right-wingers getting swept up in all of this, but many of them have pursued purposely um, aligning themselves with these kinds of leaders because what they see as uh, American values is at odds with the American values that you and I are talking about, the values of pluralism and democracy and protecting the rights of all citizens regardless of their race or gender or sexual orientation. Um, They don't like those things, right? When they talk about our heritage or restoring our heritage, they're talking about going back to a time when those civil rights laws did not apply to marginalized people. Um, and so that's why when the Christian right looks at um, Orban or Putin, they like that they uh, initiated anti-LGBT um, laws. They like that um, they have attacked the very uh, structure of the democracy, and in Putin's case, I'm sorry, in Orban's case in particular, he has attacked democracy itself in Hungary, has completely eviscerated a free press, destroyed an independent judiciary, drove a major university out based on conspiracy theories about George Soros. Does all of that sound sort of familiar, right? And um, the, for the Christian right, and he's also, you know, a, a nativist who has sealed Hungary's borders from refugees. Um, that's why um, white nationalists like him, but the Christian right likes the whole package. Um, and this is because they see the entire structure that protects human rights and civil rights and all of the institutions and values of a liberal democracy as being under attack by somebody like that. And that's precisely what they also like in Donald Trump. Mm. I, I do want to have a quick direct quote from your book, which is right along the lines of what you're saying, which is you, you write Trump's base of the Christian right and nativist supporters not only doesn't care, it actively cheerleads the denigration of democracy and human rights the rise of autocrats whipping up the grievances of right-wing populists in disdain for what America once was, which I thought 
encapsulated uh, very well the sorts of actions that, w that we see taking place here in the United States, as well as what we see and what you detail that, are, that has happened in other countries. Another thing I want to talk about uh, that's from the headlines uh, is relative to elections. And uh, it was actually one of the heads of uh, the Federal Election Commission called separation of church and state a fallacy um, within the law and called the 2020 election a spiritual war. <laughs> I'm not really sure where to start with this, um, <laughs> but... What was your reaction to that news when you read that interview? So to me, this is what you get when one of the two major political parties has promoted the idea that separation of church and state is a myth. And when the president of the United States has as his top spiritual advisor or pastor, someone who has also promoted the idea that the 2020 election is about spiritual warfare. So in a way, this isn't very surprising that a Trump administration official would say that because I've become so used to everyone around Trump saying things like this. Mm -hmm. um, but I think um, for your average uh, news consumer or voter, it's shocking because maybe they're not as immersed in it as I am, right? right? But this is why the relationship between Trump and the Christian right is so dangerous because he is willing. Imagine if another, even another Republican president had an FEC chairman who said something like this. It would be, it would be the scandal of the day. This one isn't even like in the top 20. Right. 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 Um, so the idea that this is the person who is overseeing enforcement of our campaign finance laws and he basically invited um, churches and other nonprofits to violate the Johnson Amendment because Trump tried to unilaterally invalidate it via executive order. I mean, it's just, it's like wild and crazy, but it's become, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's okay that it's become normal. I don't think we should let it become normal, but this is, this is who Trump, this is what the Trump administration is. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people, you know, that I've heard who either are advocating for the campaign or for the administration who say things like that. Um, and then you have people like, you know, Ralph Reed at the Faith and Freedom Coalition conference talking about how fantastic it is um, that there are so many Christians serving in the Trump administration, so much so that they've never had the kind of, you know, access and power that they do with Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the one of the quotes that that brings to mind that that you mentioned is Tony Perkins from the the Family Research Council saying that in this administration we're not look on the outside looking in, we're on the inside looking out, um, which is is telling uh, and indicative of the degree to which these groups have uh, infiltrated and taken over an entire political party. And you open and close your book by talking about Trump's relationship and similarity to televangelists, which you, you just mentioned, Paula White, others um, are mentioned throughout your book, like Jim Baker and televangelists have a certain appeal. They, they, they are very charismatic people. And that is clearly what this base uh, of supporters, as well as these people that are actively working towards their shared goals 
are responding to. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any indication in how we can reach th- those same sorts of people or even failing to do so, seek to redress some of the actions of this conservative block that have, um, in short order, done a lot of done a lot of damage to American democracy and to uh, American norms. One particular example is just the ways in which the Trump administration would ignore things that even even the Obama administration took from uh, George W.'s administration as norms and and policies that were continued but are discarded in in this current administration. Is there any way in in which the people that Trump and this sort of Christian nationalism appeals to could be reached? And again, feeling that, how can we seek to sort of redress something that has decades of work behind it? Right. Well, you know, when I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about people that I had interviewed for my previous book which was about televangelism and the Republican Party. And I interviewed a lot of people who had gotten out of televangelist churches, right? Who had felt either financially or spiritually or even sexually abused in these churches. And a lot of them talked to me about what it was like to be in that church um, and to, before they kind of saw the light and were able to extricate themselves from it. And the thing that struck me, and it struck me because it struck me as being very much like Trump, is this idea of the pastor's authority and that you're supposed to submit to the authority and not question it. And they often cite that verse from from, um, Psalms, uh, touch not my anointed one and do my prophets no harm. And, you know, that they're not, they're not allowed to question the pastor. They're not allowed to question the televangelist. And I remember this one woman who had been in this church where the pastor sexually abused multiple women in the church. And she said, you know, there were articles in the paper about it and I just didn't, wouldn't read them. And another woman in another church told me the same thing, that there was a big expose that the local paper did on her pastor and she just wouldn't read it because she thought it was from Satan. And um, I think about that a lot when I hear Republican office holders even Uh, telling Christian right audiences that they shouldn't believe the fake news. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think this is very difficult. And I think it's more difficult now, perhaps, than it might have been when these women I talked to for my other book got out, because that was pre-social media and all, you know, pre-internet even in some cases. And so, um, you know, it's very hard when you have people who are living in this very insular bubble when they've been made to believe that this authority figure is not to be questioned. And I think it's very dangerous and scary. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't have any answers about, um, you know, how how people get out of that. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe some people are able to get out and see the light. I hear from people, you know, um, on social media or people send me emails, you know, about that. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it obviously happens. Um, but it very much worries me that for a lot of people, it never happens. Mm-hmm. And do you think from a political perspective that their political opponents, the, the opponents on, on the left, um, are equipped to respond to this sort of machinery that the right has built up? As you said, I mean, it, it can be very insular and the ways in which people within the Christian right think it all feeds into and continues those narratives. But even 
not talking about the people that are within those communities, but even those in the public sphere who are either seeking or in public office or public service lobbying as opponents to the Christian right, um, do you think that they are equipped to to be able to respond to the threat to democracy and, and norms that, that these groups pose? Well, I think that before Trump, maybe they didn't realize or didn't take it seriously, didn't think that any of what they, what, what the Christian right hoped for, even talked about openly, was possible. Um, now with Trump, they've seen that it is possible. So I think that they're taking it far more seriously. Um, and I think that also now that we're living in this pandemic and Trump's failures and purposeful failures are becoming so increasingly apparent um, that hopefully that will wake more people up to, you know, basically like the life and death issue problems that we're facing now, like literally everyday life and death for people as a result of, you know, it's a result of the the Christian right's ongoing support for Trump through every scandal of his presidency and even now during the pandemic. If he didn't have their support, he would have been impeached. Um, you know, Republican senators would have um, voted to, or at least a, more of them would have, more than just Mitt Romney, would have voted to convict him because, but they're afraid to cross the base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your book goes up to the impeachment, and so that's why we haven't really talked about elements related to the cries for for racial justice here in the United States as well as the pandemic. But I really, really uh, enjoyed this book and the ways in which it captures this fascinating and disturbing and alarming (laughs) intellectual (laughs) and social history of the right and all its permutations, whether it's the Christian right or the new right or the alt-right and the way they, they all are connected. My guest today has been Sarah Posner. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Sarah. Where can people find you online? Where can they find uh, find the book or anything else you might want to mention here? Well, thank you so much for having me, Blake. And um, people can find more about the book and my other work at my website, sarahposner.com. Um, and, or they can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Posner. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me today. Thanks. That'll do it for this week's episode. This episode was produced by Jake Lewis. The theme music is by Dave Lefevre and Jake Lewis. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate and review Powers and Principalities on Apple Podcasts and let others know about the show. You can also support the show by purchasing Sarah's book from the link in the show notes and by signing up for a paid subscription to my newsletter, The Post Evangelical Post, at postevangelicalpost.com. Talk to you soon.